This is an ABC podcast. It was a 12-day burglary spree. Among the loot, jewellery, credit cards, a Suzuki Swift. In total, $58,000 worth. So how did the thief get nabbed? It seems that even young men in the midst of a burglary spree can't refrain from uh, showing off online. Hi, Damien Carrick here with the Law Report on RN. Kia ora, Damien. That was an interesting case that I observed. So this young gentleman was charged with four separate counts of burglary, totaling $58,000. Now, what initially caught my eye was the the sum and the uh, quick spate in which these burglaries took place, only over 12 days, sometimes multiple burglaries on the same night. There were some interesting little tidbits that emerged about the sort of clues that were left behind that made for some pretty interesting reading. The thief, Conan Tappara, a 20-year-old Kiwi, pleaded guilty. James Baker is a journalist with the Waikato Times. He says Conan's guilty plea wasn't a huge surprise. Speaking via Skype, James says the prosecution were able to trace a trail of digital evidence. The theft of the Suzuki Swift was caught on CCTV. Stolen credit cards were used to make hundreds of dollars of small withdrawals and purchases. Many of these transactions were also caught on CCTV. And at one house, a cash converter's receipt with identifying information was found lying on the floor. But then there was the ultimate damning digital fingerprint. Sort of midway during the spree, Tapara, he used a stolen iPhone from one burglary and took a selfie of himself wearing stolen jewellery and a watch from another burglary. Now, anybody who's familiar with iPhones understands that when you take a photo, it gets uploaded to an iPhone cloud. The uh, victim still had access to their account and they then passed this on to police who were able to identify Tapara pretty quickly and uh, made an arrest some days later. And I think at that point they executed a warrant and they found a stash of stolen goods from various crimes over this crime spree. Yeah, so they found a number of goods from every burglary. This selfie, it's the ultimate piece of evidence, isn't it? It's quite an extraordinary thing for him to have done. Yeah, it is. It, it is hard to imagine what was going through Tapara's head, but it certainly made the prosecution's life a lot easier by the looks of it. It sort of made a bit of a splash because it is such a, a sign of our times that, that the selfie can lead <laughs> to you ending up behind bars. I guess it's um, guilty by social media. Although the judge in sentencing did say that the crimes did show an element of sophistication. Obviously, there were parts that I didn't think through adequately. Well, the judge was very interesting. He sentenced Tapara to two years jail, and he pointed out that these were premeditated, targeted burglaries of residential properties. He pointed out that in one case, he disturbed the occupants and he had to make his escape. And at one property, I think there was ransacking causing damage. So this is kind of serious stuff, which has an impact on the people who live in the homes. And I don't know, there might have been kids there, old people there, people alone. It's serious stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So the judge was relatively sombre in his reading of the report, but he did take... Uh, into account the aggravating circumstances of the offending. So uh, at least two occasions, the victims were home. However, he did take into account a couple other factors. And one is Tapura's young age. He also showed remorse and pled guilty at the first opportunity. Um, so there were a number of 
circumstances that led to a reduction in his sentence. Indeed. I mean, I think he was described as cooperative and pleasant to deal with by everybody who came across him. Yeah, it does seem to be that way. If I remember correctly, the interviewer said he was a uh, pleasure to interview and uh, an intelligent young man. And the interviewer was surprised and disturbed that a person who seemed to be so pleasant on the surface was capable of such serious offending you know, in such a short space of time. And the judge had something really interesting to say. This is the judge at the um, Pukukohe District Court. He said Conan Tapara was 20 at the time and, quote, science and the law agreed that it takes many years for brains to develop in adolescence. So he went on to make significant deductions in sentence for that. Yes, so that's right. So, um, Judge Gerald Winter, he started off taking into account the aggravating circumstances of the offending, plus Tapura's previous convictions, plus the fact that he was doing community work at the time for previous convictions and under supervision. So he originally started with a sentence of 36 months, I believe, and then he made deductions from that. So he took off five months because of Tapura's young age. Now, the reason he did that is that in 2009, I believe it was, There was quite a famous case in which some young women were convicted for killing an elderly man. They were 15 and 17 at the time. Now, the eldest was charged with murder and received 17 years. But at the Court of Appeal, her defence managed to argue that because of her young age, although she was technically an adult under the law, her decision-making ability and risk assessment ability were not fully developed and therefore some reduction in her sentence should be undertaken. And so she managed to have her conviction reduced from 17 years to 13 years. And the same principle applied here. So Judge Gerald Winter reduced Tapara's sentence by about three months from that 36 month. He also took into account a 25% reduction for his guilty plea and his remorse. So it ended up being about 24 months in total. So James Baker, is this case, this burglary case, I mean, is it indicative of other burglary cases that, that you've, you've witnessed or reported on? No, I, I wouldn't say it is. This is quite different in a number of ways. It was very serious offending that took place over a short space of time. There seemed to be drug and alcohol issues involved. The driver to commit as many crimes as possible in a short space of time is unusual. Most burglaries, from what I see, are quite opportunistic and singular. So this does stand out. Most burglaries tend to be opportunistic. They tend to be kind of random and unplanned. Is that your impression? Uh, Yes, or or one-off and spaced out over a period of time. Of course, it it does happen, but this was, as the judge said, premeditated and showed an element of sophistication, even though the defendant did leave quite a few clues behind. What about the age profile of Conan? Does that fit in with what you see come before the courts? It tends to not be this young. It tends to be at least, I'd say, above the 30 age bracket. But unfortunately, it does occur amongst people in those late teens, early 20s type age bracket as well. It's not a young man's crime then or young person's crime, burglary? No, it it doesn't seem to be. Or if it is, it's not this kind of serious, premeditated, planned burglary. Opportunistic, small-scale stuff is quite common amongst that age bracket. But this was relatively serious 
stuff. Was there any conversation in the court about his personal life or family background in terms of the sentencing? No, there wasn't. A lot of that information can sometimes be kept close to the chest. There was a pre-sentence report written which referenced uh, drug and alcohol abuse, some gambling problems. But other than that, there wasn't much reference to his home life. There wasn't any reference to his family. His family didn't appear to be in court. I could be wrong on that count, but usually when family is in court, the defence make an effort to point them out to show that the defendant has some support, but this didn't seem to be the case. In terms of leaving these kind of electronic or digital footprints, I mean, is this one out of the box or do you often find these sorts of pieces of evidence being presented to the court? Well, it is difficult to say. It's not common. I haven't come across it very often as a form of evidence. I think this was relatively a one-off. But I do think that a lot of individuals who are using credit cards and other fraudulent activities don't quite realise the digital footprint they leave behind. So I think a lot of uh, offenders are quite surprised when they get caught doing these sorts of things. Yeah, so you're talking there about the CCTV and the, and the credit card uh, footprints and what have you. And of course, there is, of course, the kicker, the selfie. Have you ever heard of that happening before? No, no, that's, uh, that's very much out of the box. I've uh, never come across something like that. And I hope I don't again, but uh, who knows? It's fascinating in the sense that it says so much about today's society. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it seems that uh, even young men in the midst of a burglary spree can't refrain from uh, showing off online. An age of vanity. Uh, James Baker, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you very much, Damien. On RN or available as a podcast, this is The Law Report and I'm Damien Carrick. We've been talking about the Kiwi burglar who posted a selfie on a stolen phone wearing stolen jewellery. Edith Cowan University criminologist Dr Natalie Gately has interviewed many burglars in Western Australia. And she's not all that surprised by Colin Tapperer's self-sabotaging selfie. Look, the thing about it is, is kids are kids. They don't think consequentially just yet. Uh, so this that, guy was 2021, 20, I believe. Yeah, look, there's lots and lots of research now to show that, that young people don't actually fully develop their frontal lobe until they're nearly 30. So that consequential thinking that comes in that we expect of, you know, the 18-year-old, you're now an adult, really doesn't kick into a little bit later. We also live in this world of social media where everything is documented. You know, young people document every minute of the day what they eat, where they are. So it's not actually that unusual to see a young person taking a picture of themselves doing something stupid and not thinking about the consequences about what's going to happen to this picture once I upload it. It does not just go to a Facebook page, it goes to an ether out there that, you know, pretty much anyone can access. So social media has become quite an important thing for places like Crime Stoppers or WA Police or policing wherever you are to, to use social media. To, have you seen this person? Do you know this person? It's become quite an important tool for policing agencies across the world. Is it out of the box for crims to actually post themselves with their loot? Look, it is a little bit, but it's not for younger offenders. Younger offenders, as I say, they're still very immature in the way that they do things. Unless they've actually been taught through the, the ranks how to burgle and how to offend, they're going to do just the same stupid things that any other young person with a selfie stick and a camera is going to do. 
what's the profile of the professional burglar? Do they tend to be a much older cohort? Usually, yes. Offenders are, generally speaking, young males, but the older they get, obviously, the more experience they get. And putting young people, particularly in jail, which is interesting about this New Zealand case, is jail for our young people is the last resort because they get an education in jail as well. So if you're mixing with more experienced people and more experienced offenders in jail, the chances are you're going to pick up some better techniques. So yes, it makes sense that the older you are, the more experienced you are, the better you are going to be at whatever you, your offence is or whatever you're doing in life. When you're in jail, it's like boys' homes we consider like kindergarten and then you progress to jail, which is... Um, uh, university and when you're in jail blokes sit around and they talk about crimes that they've committed and how they've done it and that's how people progress from one crime to another because they learn so much in jail and I was in jail with a lot of blokes that did break and enters and burglaries and things like that. What's your reaction to that New Zealand story about the man who posted a selfie on a stolen phone uh, of him with stolen jewellery and then that was posted to the cloud and, and the victim was able to send that photo to the police? What's your response when you hear that story? I consider him to be um, part of the world's dumbest criminals and um, would be uh, dumb and dumbest. Dave, not his real name, was a very serious criminal. He spent time in jail for high-speed car chases, for breaking into commercial properties, and many years ago he was sentenced to 20 years jail for an armed robbery and shooting. Um, I spent approximately 27 years in jail, plus boys' hands on top of that. D Dave, how do you reflect? I mean, you found guilty of armed robbery and wounding somebody. I think a bank teller shot them in the shoulder. How do you reflect on that now? Do you acknowledge that that was a terrible, terrible crime? I still regret it to this day and wish it had never happened. It's, it's happened. I can't do anything about that. It was my fault. I was there. I shouldn't have been there. And honestly, I would never, ever, ever do it again. I would never, ever put a person at risk like that again. At the time, for want of a better expression, I was young and dumb and full of calm and thought I was a hero. Basically, I had no sense. Um, and no empathy for your fellow human being, maybe? Oh, look, I do now at that time. Well, I can't say I had empathy. If I had empathy, I, I wouldn't have done it. Now, it's one of the most, what is the most regretful thing that I've ever done in, in my life. Not because you got caught, but because you actually injured a human being. Yes, yes. I was done without thought, without proper thought. Do you ever think about the person that you injured? Of course I do, yes, of course I do. I have to live for that for the rest of my life. And yes, I do think about it regularly. You think about that man and, and maybe his family and, and what, he, what he, he's suffering? Of course, of course. Despite his long criminal history, Dave says he's never broken into someone's home. But his cellmates did teach him a lot about home burglaries. I never ever targeted private houses because uh, I don't like that offence and I really don't like people that break into private houses. And that's what, because you recognise the impact on, on the residents, on the people who live there? Yes, 100%. You've spent a lot of time with um, thieves and burglars and what have you. So, so let's talk a little bit about residential properties and what you know about 
that kind of crime and, and also about commercial properties. What do people look for when they want to break and enter into an empty house or burgle an occupied house? What do they look for? Now, with um, private homes, people would drive around at night time. Like, you get a lot of people now, junkies especially, they don't care. They'll just kick your front door. They'll knock on the door. Nobody answers it. They'll kick the front door in and, and take what they want. But professional people that do it for a living to make money, they would take the time, they would drive around of a night time around high-class suburbs and they would take notes. They would see if houses didn't have any lights on for two or three nights, if there was a build-up of mail, even junk mail. If a letterbox is full of junk mail, people haven't emptied it or filled with normal mail. That is reasonable to suggest that nobody's there. Yeah, the grass has grown long. People haven't been there for a while. They could be overseas. And they see that and they know that that could be a target. And these days, I mean, people have alarm systems. A lot of people that's have right. alarm that's systems. So, so that's presumably, um, you know, changed the game considerably and, and helped residents secure their premises. Yes, it does. Of course, motion, motion detectors, right? That stops a lot of people and motion sensors, sensor lights and all things like that. That helps a lot. But you cut the power to the house, that's it. Some of them nowadays have got backup batteries, right? So you have to get the modern equipment today. But what about the poor people that can't afford those things and they can't afford to be broken into, but they're still getting broken into it? So you've got security, you've got alarms, you've also got CCTV cameras. A lot of people have those these days, or some people have those. Well, I had a friend of mine that had a full security system and they broke into his house and stole his security system. Right. <laughs> you know, so what do you do there? Yeah, it was, I think it was about November last year. Wasn't the CCTV footage stored somewhere on the cloud or something like that? No, well, that's what you got now. You've got cloud and to, and to your phone. They actually caught one of the, uh, it was a young um, kid and he was riding up the road on his push bike with my friend's son's backpack on his back. And he had um, the kid's laptop and, um, and other stuff that he, he'd taken out of the house. But yeah, they took the whole security system out. How was he discovered then? How was he found with the backpack going up the street? Because my friend that was in Queensland and my friend was on um, Fraser Island and he, see, you can get alarm systems now where I've got an alarm system myself that you walk in my front yard and it rings on my phone. And it says motion detected, somebody's at your front door. And then I just go bang view and I can look and I can talk to the people at the front door and I can be anywhere, anywhere. He got the message on his phone and his wife was in Brisbane and she rang the police and she went to the house straight away. And the kid was riding up the street with the son's backpack on there. Mm. So he wasn't identified by the CCTV, but he was identified because he... Yes, yes, he was. He was identified by the CCTV yes. going away from the house. If you go in with a balaclava on, you can't identify that, can you? Mm. Mm. But yeah, getting back to the professional thief will do his homework. If you want to make good money, you've got to do your homework. Um, just kicking doors in because you're a junkie and knocking on the door and nobody answers the door, those people get caught every day. There's nothing you can do. If he's half smart, which they're usually not, well, he's going to put a hoodie on and sunglasses, at least cover his face in some way because of today's technology. 
it doesn't matter what security system you got. If somebody kicks the front door in and they've got a balaclava on, well, they're in front, aren't they? Do you think because of the um, increase in quite widespread use of, of alarms and, and, you know, not not so widespread, but, but some people have it, CCTV, do you think that means that more people maybe risk a burglary when they they don't care if somebody's actually in the house? Um, well, that, because that, that way the alarm system won't be turned on. Well, you've got the cat burglar, right? He's the bloke that does it when they're asleep. And he, you know, you, you, you'll see you'll, and you'll hear of numerous cases of people that are they're asleep and the cat burglar will sneak in. He'll, he'll walk around inside your house. They take your car keys. They take all your jewellery and everything they want and put it, in, put it in your car and drive off in your car. With all the modern alarm systems, what I think then is that the poorer people are getting robbed. Because they don't have the technology in the house. That's right. What would be the take-home message that you would give to residents to secure their property? Well, if you can afford it, get modern technology or get a very big Rottweiler. Uh, and I don't say that flippantly. Like, there's certain things you can do. But a determined thief will find some way. You can stop a lot of the, what I term, the idiot thieves with sensor cameras, sensor lights, sensor lights, especially at night time if somebody's casing your joint and that, or even sensor lights with an alarm inside, you know, alarm your doors. Dave, it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you very much for sharing some of your uh, experiences and some of what you know about what what are terrible crimes. Be, let's be absolutely straight up and down about that. They're terrible, terrible crimes. But look, thank you for, for sharing your experiences. Yeah, not a problem. If it makes one person stop doing it, I'll be I'll, I'll be happy with that. And so, yeah, you hope that you might deter people from committing horrible crimes, but also maybe protecting people who live in homes from these kinds of crimes as well. Oh, look, I wouldn't talk to you if that wasn't my aim. Dave, not his real name. Another way of achieving that aim is to get inside the heads of burglars. Criminologist Natalie Gately and her colleagues have been doing just that. Well, we've spoken to adult offenders and juvenile offenders to find out what their motivations are for and sometimes their modus operandi are for doing burglaries. So I think in one study you spoke to 69 adults in the East Perth Watch House. They spoke to you anonymously. And then in another study you spoke to, I think, about 87 kids who'd passed through the WA Children's Court. When it comes to burglaries, are they well-planned crimes or are they spontaneous and opportunistic? Well, what we found through both of the studies was that very few of them were very well planned. So the well planned ones were where they actually have very professional burglars that case the joints and really know the movements of the people involved. More commonly were the very opportunistic type of um, burglaries. So they see something, they realise it's going to be easy to get and they go for it. Or the sort of out with intent, we know we're going to go out, we know we're going to burgle somewhere, but we're not sure until we find the right place. I think in one study you found, that the one involving adults, you found that two thirds entered through open doors or windows. 
Correct, and that's the same for juveniles as well. So open doors and windows. In Australia, we live a very alfresco lifestyle. We also have a lot of wind. We rely on the wind and the sea breeze to cool things down. Therefore, we've become a little bit complacent, perhaps. And I don't want to victim blame. It's not, it's not people who've been burgled. It's not their fault they're being burgled. But sometimes the way they leave their house makes it easier for those people to pick their premises. So open doors, open windows. Well, what else do burglars look for? Do they look for, I don't know... Um bins which have been left out for days, overflowing mailboxes. What about those sorts of things? Well, what we found with both of our studies is that ease of entry was the number one thing. So how easily can we get into this place? The visibility of valuables, so having things that are sort of easily displayed, so looking through windows and seeing money, jewellery, laptops, anything that's easily carried away, and the opportunity, which is that thing about the absence of capable guardians, so, you know, no neighbours around. So they don't want to be caught, these people. So anything that allows them to get in and out of a house very quickly with minimal interruption options and minimal chances of getting caught are going to make the place more likely to be burgled. Okay, so what's likely to slow them down and deter them? Obviously, particularly with professionals, but not not necessarily. The kids even know how to look for things like um, alarm systems, monitoring, those sorts of very sort of high level. But even things like dogs, barking dogs put off burglars across the range. They didn't like the barking dogs. Anything was going to draw attention to them. If there were neighbours in the street, so people around that were actually going to be able to see them and identify them, they tended to stay away from those places. Well, let's talk about the motivations for burglary. Drugs, how big an issue is that and is that growing as a motivation? Look, it is a, it's a big motivation. We had people talking about needing to steal for money, for drugs, to support a habit or because they owed their drug dealer money and they were stealing goods for a drug dealer. So that remains to be a problem. But all of the burglars that we spoke to, particularly the younger ones who are less cognitively developed, who are very impulsive, they talk about need and they very much justified what they were doing because they needed it. So some of the, the the people, I think eight of the kids we interviewed, actually stole food. So they went in and stole food from the freezer. They didn't take anything else out of the house at all, apart from food, and, and if they saw money. So they talk about it very much in terms of their needs, which is that very obviously singular way of, of them thinking, you know, justifying their own actions, I guess. So you've got a, you've got a huge spectrum. You've got desperate kids looking for food. You've got drug addicts looking for money to kind of get high and then what at the far end you've got some professionals who are casing out a place and, and then stealing stealing goods which they will then sell. That's correct, yeah. And it's not necessarily drug addicts trying to get high. Uh, one of the sort of things around drug use is it's to, to feel normal. So it's, it's not about getting high as such, it's about feeding their addiction, which is, it, it makes it sound like they're sort of hedonistic, just doing it to get high. But once it becomes an addiction, it becomes a compulsive, you know, they need to do it. And they spoke about it in those terms of, I need this. Natalie, I believe you're just back from holidays. What did you do to make sure that your home was safe? Well, I had somebody come in and, and actually look after my house. So I had a friend come in and house it for me. I also made sure I cancelled any paperwork. When I was on social media, I keep my social media very, my Facebook page very closed in terms of my friendship group. So they would have known that I was there. They also would have known it was being looked after. 
But that idea about cancelling everything, making sure that the bins are out and put in. Now, if you don't have someone to house sit, it's really good to get to know your neighbours. Your neighbours are, are very prominent in this, is getting them to bring your bins back in for you, not leaving them out there for two or three days at a time. And then there's also the other side of uh, making sure that things are not on display at home. So my jewellery box went in the safe. You know, my more valuable things I put somewhere safe. And then there's the option of what happens if I get burgled. All my photos are backed up on USB in another location. So there's sort of things around that area you look at. What can I do to prevent it? Then what, what will I do if it happens? Have I got insurance? Have I got, you know, my most valuable things put somewhere else? Some wise advice from Edith Cowan University criminologist Natalie Gately. That's the Law Report. Thanks to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.